A very warm welcome to all our listeners on Behind the Deal, a new podcast series that explores the intricacies of venture capital from the very best with co-hosts Ashish and Vishnu Priya. Today with us we have Sandeep Murthy, partner at Lightbox Ventures. He is one of the builders of India's internet economy, an early investor in Inmobi and InfoEdge, two of India's billion dollar technology companies. Thank you Sandeep for joining us it's a pleasure to have you Sandeep uh, you were part of Shipalo Ventures and KPCB before starting Lightbox so what what were your reasons to start the fund and uh, how do you differentiate yourself from the other 200 300 active funds currently well there's a lot in that um first of all thanks guys for having us here and uh you know i think it's uh i think it's been a journey for many years to get to a point where we could manage a fund of our own and uh do something independently with uh kind of driven by a group of people on the ground with a uh, strong connection to the market and an understanding of what's uh important to us so i think that uh going back to the the early days i, I learned a lot working with uh ram at chapalo and uh the guys at kleiner perkins and it was a fantastic uh opportunity to get a perspective on how venture capital works and uh, work with some really smart people who had done this for many years I think as the, the as time went it became clear that their desires and interests were different and my desire and interest was to remain in India and that's when uh Sid and I also started to talk about what we wanted to do in life we'd obviously known each other from school and I've been watching what he'd been doing he'd been seeing what I've been doing and started to get involved with some of our portfolio companies as he was starting to think about what to do next in life and all of that kind of brought us through to thinking about what what would we want to do and what kind of business would we want to build and that's what it really was it was about building a business it wasn't about managing money it's not about uh and deploying the capital that the deployment of the capital is really a an an ends to a means of working with really smart people who give us an opportunity to think about markets and consumers and how to build really interesting products and services but um but but taking a step back again the the idea was really what kind of company do we want to build? Is Lightbox is a company that we're building. And I think in that we felt that we really wanted to be our hands on in things that we do. People that have strong opinions and views, um have the conviction to stand behind businesses um through the difficult times. I think one of the most exciting things about a startup is really the challenges you face because it's only through the challenges you face do you are you able to really enjoy the successes that you have. and uh i think for us it was very clear that we wanted to be in in that thick of things everyone feel that pain and feel those challenges i appreciate a bit narcissistic manner of uh of, of living that way but it, it is uh, exciting and uh, it it makes for a uh, great space and it makes for a as people would say a life worth living to some extent in that sense and so um Yeah, I could go on in this in in this direction but I'll, I'll turn it back over to you to go wherever you'd like to from here. Um one of the other things was that Sandeep you've inherited your investment methodology as well from Shopalo and KPCV because you were the uh, point lead uh, in India for them and you decided to start Lightbox with a synthetic secondary. So uh could you tell us a little bit about how you differentiated your investment methodology from that of Shapalo which is a mentor capital firm and in terms of a performance analysis of these two funds the ones uh the first fund where you took over 6 out of 9 investments from Shapalo and the Lightbox 2 which is uh 
essentially your baby uh what has the performance been like for these two funds a comparative analysis yeah so look i think actually what happened was our strategy in india and and perhaps even ram strategy overall has been driven at the start by the fact that we didn't have a fund and uh we weren't investing out of a fixed pool of capital we didn't have um pressure to deploy money in any uh period of time and so really what we did was we sat down and and actually I I came across an interesting article back in 2005 or 6 that talked about the fact that in essence and it seems obvious the success of venture funds is governed heavily by the success of its portfolio companies and it provided a bunch of data that talked about where where serial entrepreneurs will go back to the same fund that they've worked with even if they were getting better offers elsewhere where the the success of a company was more heavily driven by a second time entrepreneur than necessarily a first time entrepreneur there were lots of different factors that that were interesting in that article but the thing that really made sense and stood out was you're only going to be as good as your companies are and so rather than worrying about doing the next deal and doing the next deal we made the decision that okay we're going to see what happens here india was new uh for everyone india was new to venture capital to some extent at that point in time so we said okay we let's invest in our first company and see what happens our first company was clear trip and um <clears throat> we made the decision at at that point in time that actually there was an opportunity for me to get operationally involved in that business so i took on the role of ceo i worked with the company for 2 years helped build it and then transitioned it back to one of the other founders we in parallel made our sort of second investment which was also very kind of reflective of some of the thinking which was an infoedge which was a late stage business which gave us a chance to understand what was happening at the other end of the spectrum and look at what it had taken to build a company where they were going next how they would scale up from there and we brought the perspective of a little bit more tech orientation into to infoedge as well so i would say that this idea of a handful of companies working closely with them um being involved in it was born more out of just the structure of how we were and the structure of how ram is so i think this idea of mentor capital makes makes a lot of sense as a name and a concept and i think that that's i shy away from the word mentor because i'm not necessarily convinced that i'm in a position to mentor anyone i feel like we're as investors in a position to share learnings that we have from different experiences that entrepreneurs otherwise wouldn't but in fact actually we learn a lot more from them i think than uh, they even realize and so <clears throat> i would say that that's uh how the philosophy grew and i say that it worked well i mean the idea was what it was a, a something we enjoyed if you look at our partnership at lightbox um sid has deep operating experience having started his own company raised capital sold the business worked with a large business prashant uh has deep experience having worked with yahoo for many years in in both the us and in uh and throughout asia and the rest of the world and then having run comly as a uh, ad network as well so again inclined in that direction jeremy His partner based in the US was the first was a entrepreneur first uh sold his business to Netscape then was with AOL for a couple of years and then was the first corporate development person at Google so again has operating experience this is what we like to do so the the mentor or concentrated portfolio approach wasn't a stretch or, or difficult for us it was a bit different from how the venture ecosystem works whereby <clears throat> in general i think people have have been successful playing a model of percentages and uh you invest in a, a broad number of companies and a certain number hit and many fail and the hits are big and therefore that makes the math work out and i think that that that's a proven approach ours is a little bit newer i would say for argument's sake or different uh although i think it, it it is also working well so coming to your question of how has the first set of companies performed um the way i look at it is 
We invested in 10 companies from 2005 to about 2012. Uh, those companies have had a mixed set of returns over that period of time. Some we took in as part of Lightbox, Fund One. Some remained uh, with Kleiner and Ram. One of the most notable ones that's, uh, that we were unfortunately unable to bring as part of Lightbox One was Inmovi, which is doing extremely well. Uh, the other businesses, <clears throat> whether it's been Map My India, where we were able to exit it to Flipkart, or uh, in the case of ClearTrip, actually we sold as Ram and Kleiner sold the position to uh, Concur, which was SAP, or InfoEdge, which went public. Um, we've had businesses that are Paymate, which is still continuing to grow and do well in uh, as part of Lightbox One. So I would say that the evidence of Fund One and the traction that it had back in 2014 is what allowed us to raise Fund Two. And uh, that evidence of, of what it was is, has materialized to, to, to a large extent in Fund One. And I think you'll start to see it in both Paymate and in Mobi as uh, they grow and find liquidity in the coming years. Uh, and Fund Two, though, I think we applied the same thesis, the same idea, just focused in a little different manner. We in Fund One, while we looked very much at technology as a pure enabler for business models and said that basically the philosophy was if you build a platform and you run one transaction or 100 transactions or 100,000 transactions, the incremental cost is negligible. And we wanted to be in businesses where that was the, the characteristic. In Fund Two, I'd say we started to understand that there's an opportunity to actually capture product margin in addition to distribution margin. So that first model that I talked about really allows you to capture the distribution margin. The, the evolution in fund two became, oh, we can actually build this stuff better and we can use technology to make the product better, not just use it to distribute it better. And also we felt that technology could be a big driver in how you acquire customers and therefore how your brands are built. So, and that led us to actually understand actually that the, the another big lever in a business model is what your brand is. And you know we, we, we debate a lot and we talk a lot about brand and the value of brand. And I think a simple way to think about that is really, what is the incremental amount that somebody is willing to pay for your product versus somebody else's comparable product? And that's the brand value. And I think that if you can do that well and you can, can, can create a good brand around it, you can both capture greater margin as well as greater market share. And so as we've done fund two, we've started to understand that we have many other levers or directions that we can look at to actually build businesses. And that took us in the direction of a Ferlenco, where we actually own the assets of the furniture, or Revel, where we actually make the food that we're selling. And so <clears throat> this dimension has come in. And I'll tell you now, coming out of COVID and, and looking at where the businesses are, again, I would say that Fund2 is performing well, meeting our meeting, it's, and, and hopefully soon we'll be exceeding our expectations. And... Um, and yeah, so we, we, we feel good about how we've been able to extend that early philosophy in this direction and uh, build upon it, quite honestly, based on ideas that everyone has brought in. Um, it may have started with this idea of simple concentration, but over time, the learnings that we've had from some of the businesses in Fund 2 have influenced now what we think about in Fund 3, which I'm happy to talk about as, uh, as we go through this as well. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting, Sandeep. So if we dive a little bit deeper in terms of, our, let's so let's say, um, what were sort of the challenges setting up your first fund versus the second fund? I mean, you mentioned uh, um, your performance of first fund led you to, you know, successfully raise the uh, second fund. But what were the sort of challenges uh, with respect to fund one and fund two you faced when raising the capital? Yeah, so we did fund one and fund two concurrently. So fund one was a buyout of the assets, which meant we were talking to one set of 
uh, investors and fund two was a blind pool of capital. And you have to understand, look, as much as I had been investing from 2005 till let's say 2012, I never had to deal with raising capital. And I dealt with raising capital for companies, which is a comparatively, I would argue, easier thing because you have a set of metrics to talk about. You have a product to show people. You have customers that they can call and reference. When you're raising money for a fund, you really have yourself and that's it. And um, it was a it was a different experience. And so I would say that there was a lot of learning in that. Um, we started first by saying, we'll talk to a set of investors and give them this great opportunity to invest in, in, in fund one where they know all the companies and we can show them everything and they can have confidence and comfort around what, what they're buying. And in addition, they can then give us money for the blind pool, which is fund two. Unfortunately, the world doesn't work that way. And what might seem interesting and, and logical at one level ended up being actually just not a fit. And you start to understand that investors want to choose risk in their own way and want to allocate capital um, the way they see fit. So as much as we may have thought that we're packaging something really nice for them, it's not always the case. And there are some people that like that. And it's called a staple transaction. There are some people who like that. But for us at that point, and you got to remember back in 2012 when we started this process, there had not been a secondary at a fund level in, in India and venture. And globally at that point, I think there had just been one, maybe two venture-based secondary transactions that were done. And so this was a whole new game that we were getting into. Now, eventually as it went, it was about, I would say, 220 meetings uh, around the world in various places, convincing people that we were, that we knew what we were doing, that we could repeat what we had done, that we had this crazy idea of a concentrated portfolio could work because we felt that we could really understand both the markets we were getting into deeply, as well as work with the teams effectively to ensure that we were course correcting early enough and not just letting things die that maybe would have had a chance to succeed. So I think that uh, that, that journey was, uh, was painful. And uh, I had said at one point that, you know, this raising capital is not at all where I want to be or what I want to do. But the reality is, it is what our business is about. And uh, I think the reality is we, we play this role in between people that have capital and are looking for returns and people that have ideas and need the capital to make them succeed. And to do that, you do have to manage relationships on all sides. And I think quite honestly, as a firm, we've gotten quite good at that now. And we understand our role and our responsibility in both what we do with the entrepreneurs as well as what we have to do with our limited partners. So I'd say that uh, <clears throat> I think learning... And I'll tell you one other thing that was very clear over time is mm-hmm. you can sell people on uh, technology, you can sell people on our strategy, you can sell people on our performance, but if they haven't bought into the idea of having, let's say, India country risk in their mind, it becomes mm-hmm. a very difficult sale. And uh, mm-hmm. I would say that of those 220 meetings, too many of them were spent on trying to educate people on what India was. And it was a massive uptick for us when uh, Modi had came into power then. And the, the PR that took place around it and the, the sort of uh, perception that changed. And that's the other thing that you come to learn in this business, that so much of it has to do with what is the sentiment, not necessarily what are the facts. And uh, if the sentiment on something is strong or negative for whatever sets of reasons at any given point in time, which could be related to information that's coming out that's incorrect, or information that's just spiraling for some reason, um, that can change how people view things. And I think we were fortunate uh, in the sense that 
we were towards the, the latter part of our fundraise process when uh, Modi came to power, and that just helped accelerate a lot, and that brought a lot more attention to India, and therefore people were willing to take that risk, and then we were the ones that were there at that moment to capture that, and I think that was uh, very helpful. So, look, like most things in life, luck is involved, and um, I think that, you know, we were doing a lot of the right things. Uh, we were, I think, quite honestly, tenacious. We went through many false starts on the fundraising process. We had many people commit and uncommit and lots of different challenges that, that went on in that. But uh, I, I, one of the, 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 the fastest that we look for in entrepreneurs is your ability to, to be tenacious and, and ride through the hard times. And that comes from the fact that we ride through the hard times. And so we don't ask our entrepreneurs to do anything that we're not doing and not going through. And so I can tell you that much as it may seem like the investing side is a comfortable world, it's a it's 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 just as stressful as uh, as building the business. And really, two hundred and twenty meetings—that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was. I can tell you, I got I got tired of our story. I mean, I really <laughs> I used to mix up the slides myself just to jump around a little bit and keep myself interesting because uh, otherwise, you know, you you do tend to forget which meeting you said which story in, and especially if you do <laughs> a day and a that or not, no, and uh, it, it gets tiring. So look, I'm very today that we now have among the partners, we have enough people that can tell the story among our team. We have enough people that can tell the story and, and, and conversations like this to, to get our story out so that then people are a little bit more aware of it. And I'm not having to necessarily recount all of it all the time. Um, but those early days were, were not necessarily the case. Um, Sid, as uh, part of the story and the tenacity that you've mentioned, you've also spoken about how VC is just another way of playing the game of building a business, but um, also that uh, operations is what you do and ventures is the stage at which you get involved. So how did you introduce this entire graph to the Indian market of venture capital of being operationally heavy with entrepreneurs and guiding them, but letting it be their project? while remaining a guiding force in that process? You know, it's, it's actually not that hard an idea because anybody who's been an entrepreneur, and especially if you're the CEO founder of a business, it's a very lonely place to be. Um, it's, you have a team that's all looking for you for direction and, and doesn't necessarily want to, to feel the anxiety or the, the concerns and worries. They definitely feel some of them, but I, I don't think you can reveal everything in its entirety, especially on an emotional level. You have, uh, most of the times, if we have investors who are looking for answers uh, more than interested in, in working together to solve problems, um, not saying that they don't want to, I'm just saying that the very nature of many funds doesn't allow them the time to be able to invest as much in solving these problems. And so I think when you start talking to entrepreneurs and you start saying that, look, we're only going to have eight companies in this fund. And that means that if we're in, we're in entirely. And uh, that means that we're going to work through whatever problems that exist. And we're going to want to be involved much more so than just at the board meetings. And we're going to want to be there. And now that can sound scary, I think, as an entrepreneur saying, oh, my God, who's going to meddle in my life? But I think the, the reality is once they spend time talking to the other entrepreneurs we've worked with, they understand that actually our desire is not to change your vision. I, we're very clear. It's your business. It's your it's your opportunity to go after. What our, our desire is to make sure that you have all the information you could possibly have to make the best decision and that you have somebody that you can talk through your issues with and think through things with. And I think that's just uh, healthy and good. 
I think that the idea, it's, it's almost to an extent like a therapist. And uh, I think that there's a lot of value in that relationship. There's a lot of value in any therapy relationship. And I think that this one, which brings with it <clears throat> knowledge of other things that are going on in the market, which is, by, by the way, why it's really important for us to stay very current. If all my information is from 2005 when I ran ClearTrip, I would be irrelevant today. And the only reason why we can stay relevant is because we're actually involved in enough other information from other businesses, have enough stories to share. And I think that's all people really want. They want to know that they're not alone. They want to know that they have um, somebody else has been through a similar journey and hear a little bit about how they handled it. And actually what's really, I think, honestly, quite powerful is that the, the connections that the CEOs make with each other and their ability to talk to each other and their ability for the operating teams to talk to other people in their operating teams. I, I can tell you quite honestly, we haven't solved that well enough. I, I would like to, to put more structure and uh, put more technology perhaps even behind it in some way, but whatever opportunities do exist when that happens, it's, uh, it's fantastic just to see that people can say, okay, wow, okay, I have a different way of understanding this now. Okay, that's helpful. And um, so I, I think it's a, it's a package that comes together. It's not necessarily this idea of, look, we're going to be operationally involved, so now let's go. It's, uh, it's a relationship. And look, we're in these relationships for, let's say, anywhere from, it could be seven to 12 years. And uh, that's, a, that's a long time. And so you, you, wanna, you have to have, uh, an understanding about who each, who, who everyone is. There has to be an, a belief in the fact that everyone's interested in a in a larger objective, whether that is simply a, a value creation of the business or impacting people in a certain way. Wh whatever it may be, there has to be that alignment of desire because nothing ever goes per plan. And the, the bigger issue is really how does everyone react when things don't go per plan and how do they work together. And um, so I think all of those come together, which is why it's not a it's not a decision to be taken lightly to raise capital. It's not a decision to be taken solely on the metric of am I getting the highest valuation that I could possibly get. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a tight bond that you're creating with the new person uh, on both sides. And I think everybody needs to have as much comfort and understanding of each other as possible. So Sandeep, how do you identify or in the relationship, uh, how do you identify when to exit or when to end the particular uh, uh, exit the investment? What are the criteria for you as a fund? Uh, yeah. Um, so look, we have, we are managing a portfolio. And I think that's the, the important thing to understand. And I think that it's, it's uh, as much as it is about every individual company and what their opportunity can look like, we have made a commitment as well to our investors to return a certain amount of capital at a fund level. And so our, our thought process is driven by what is the best way to possibly achieve that objective? So it's not about, am I getting, if I, am I getting a 5X in this company? If I wait, can I get a 7X? Um, it's more about, okay, if this company can deliver this today and I can lock that in and the next company can deliver that later and I can get that, or you, you have to think about it at a portfolio level and then make decisions on what is best mm -hmm. there. Now that's how, that's the lens we need to look at it from. The other side is really, as a uh, board member at the company, we have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for the company as well. So we're not in a position to ever simply wake up in the morning and say, let's sell our stock. It's not a public market. It's not something that just works that easily. So as a result, we also have to make sure that the company is in a position where it is ready and it is thinking actively about the fact that, okay, we are on a journey together for a limited period of time. 
it's a long time, but it will end at some point. And we have to be aligned from the beginning that at some point we're going to need to figure out where we get off and they continue. And I think that's a conversation that starts right from the beginning. So it's not one where we can wake up, let's say, five years in and say, hey, guys, all right, so it's time for us to kind of think about what we're going to do next and how we're going to get out. It doesn't work like that. When, from the minute we invest in a business, a few things happen. One, we are preparing the document and the thought process for what is the next round of funding going to look like. And the reason you do that is because let's say I've invested $5 million in a company. The clock is ticking the minute the cash hits the bank. You're burning capital. And the, the biggest issue is you have to figure out how you are looking at reducing risk in the business. You can't be, you, you, you're, you're not about solving the end game. And, and I think that that's a, a big distinction that people have to get comfortable with right away is, I'm not looking for the final, final end IPOable business out of the capital we're giving today. I'm looking at it and saying, what are the biggest risks that exist for somebody else coming next? And how can we demonstrate that we have reduced that risk? And so that conversation starts there. The, the other that would have started earlier and is kind of put on the shelf is, okay, what is that end picture going to look like? What should the business be at a point in time when we all want to exit and we believe that there's value that's been created? What do the metrics need to look like there? Are we trending in that direction or are we not? Are we agreeing that we're not even thinking about that for another two years and it'll be on the shelf, but it's something that we're aware of. So I, I would say that that's the, the manner in which this thought around exit and this, this conversation around exit, it's, uh, it's, it's the reality is it's not, a, it's not a decision that can be made independently by anybody. It's a decision that's governed along with the entrepreneur and quite honestly, the market. I may want to exit, the entrepreneur might be happy to, but the market might be what it was last year, and it might not just make sense to. Um, right now, markets are looking amazing for liquidity, and uh, there's a lot of discussion going on around that. So I, I think that uh, that's the other, like we talk about luck. You have to have everything lined up and ready, and the market has to be in the right place, and then there's this idea of you must make hay while the sun shines and try to do as much of that as you can. But how do you sort of resolve the conflict within the board? Uh, for example, if you're sitting on the board and the founders or the management is not ready to accept uh, the next fund coming, you know, whatever, there could be a number of reasons they are uh, not ready to um, let go of the current existing fund or whatever. So how do you resolve such situations? Uh, I mean, we have seen previously in many other companies in other funds. So how do you deal with such sort of situations? There's, there's a, <clears throat> how do you deal with a, a child that doesn't want to have lunch? Or how do you deal with, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I know, having to go to a, 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 something that you don't want to go to? I mean, conversation, lots of conversation. I mean, somebody asks you to, to go to a party, you don't really want to go, but you have to go. And you just, you, sometimes you have to start to, 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 and that's why you can't leave these conversations till the end, right? You have to work on creating an environment where people understand your desires and your objectives. You have to constantly communicate. And look, quite honestly, the entrepreneur might be right. They might say, listen, it's not the right time. If we bring in a new investor, they may wreak havoc. Give us another six months. Let's do these things. Let's work together. They may be absolutely right. And we may say that that, that makes sense. It's not a, like I said, we are not, and it's a bad example of say a child or whatever, because I'm not saying that we're the parent in the relationship. I'm simply saying that we could very well be the child saying, I want to go out. And the, 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 they could be as the parent saying, no, it's not the right time to. And I think that we need to, to, to have an ability to talk. You need to have communication working. You need to have trust. You need to have empathy. There's so many parameters that are essential as they would be in any relationship. And um, I think that that's what you spend 
the preceding five to seven years cultivating together. And uh, that's what allows for those conversations to resolve themselves in a way that works. If you don't have that, and look, you can't, you can't sort of develop that type of relationship by meeting once every three months and having a discussion on a PowerPoint presentation. You have to have regular engagement. You have to have, but I have this idea, this, this thought process that says you have to show up to an entrepreneur with a gift. And what I mean by that is not a box of chocolates. You have to show up regularly with stuff that makes their life easier and better. You can't just show up every time and say, why isn't this working or why isn't this happening? I think you have to, to bring them stuff that, like, oh, wow, there's value in this relationship. Okay, yeah, you do really care about this. Okay, you didn't just write a check and are now waiting for me to do all the work and bring it back to you, which we very well can. And that, that's well within our, our, I guess, nature of relationship to simply write the check and say, give me the return 10 years from now. But it's not going to work. There's enough evidence that shows that that doesn't work, that only through deep, regular engagement and a relationship will you ever get to anything that works for everyone. Also because those exit outcomes are going to be less optimal than anyone would ever hope. Most cases, everyone is trying to optimize for something or the other. And therefore, usually it's the best worst outcome. And I'm, I'm saying that even for fantastic outcomes where somebody would have expected a little bit more, somebody would have expected something else, somebody would have expected something this way, that way. And so everybody needs to be able to collaborate to work together. And that goes for investors with other investors, investors with entrepreneurs, investors with the acquirer, entrepreneur with the acquirer, whatever it may be. Sandeep, one of the things that you've, uh, uh, I would say, emphasized from time to time is the concept of value unlocking. But you've also said that the value in a company can't be unlocked unless you actually uh, direct your energy towards creating it. So keeping that relationship with your entrepreneurs in mind, what is your yardstick when it comes to valuations for these companies? And uh, one of the interviews which... I think were given by Sid, he spoke about an emphasis on the mindset. So what is this mindset that guides your understanding of valuations when it comes to your portfolio companies or even when you're trying to incorporate companies within your portfolio? What is their potential value in your mind? Uh, so, look, I, I guess the way I would think about this is you start with the question of is it even a market that's worth getting into? So, I mean, that, that's basically the, the, the starting point of this. Is it big enough? And the reason you have to worry about is it big enough as a starting point is because, like I said, you're going to generally be wrong about how you've sized, sized the space, how you've thought about the product, how you've thought about the customer pain. So all these things you're going to be off a little bit on in any case. So you need enough wiggle room to make it work. So there are certain industries, let's say, that if the overall industry size, as, as anybody would assess it, and I typically start with what the entrepreneur will tell me because the argument is they have the best sense of it. Let's say they tell you that we're in a $2 billion market. So, okay, fine, you're in a $2 billion market. And let's just assume for a second that over time there are going to be multiple players in this market. And let's say that in general it would be really great if you could capture I don't know, 5% of your market. So you could build a $100 million business. Now, that's if everything goes really well in life. You can get to, let's say, a $100 million business. Now, let's look at what businesses in that sector may be valued at. Let's say they're typically valued on some, again, revenue multiple of some sort. Um, and let's just say for argument's sake, it's valued at a two times revenue multiple or a three times revenue multiple. So in the best case scenario, you have a $100 million revenue business that's valued at three times revenue, so you have a $300 million business. Now, let's say you're raising $10 million from us. And let's make, uh, 
let's try to make math easy here. Let's just say for argument's sake that when all is said and done, uh, and after you've raised multiple rounds of capital for this business, our $10 million investment is now worth, let's say, 10% of the company. Now, at that point in time, you have a $300 million company where our $10 million investment has now become $30 million. Now, that's a 3x over some period of time with everything having to go perfectly. Now, if I just multiplied those market sizes and everything by 10, I had a $20 billion market, I had a $3 billion company, I had a $300 million exit, that becomes a lot more interesting. And so now that's, I guess, how we start to assess what is the value creation possibility in this space? What do we believe can work? And you really have to start to look at what is not going to work. And uh, we spent a lot of time, by the way, looking at what's not going to work. And then we've, we've adopted a practice whereby we now, with every term sheet we send out, we send a long letter. Letters seem to be get long, getting longer and longer as we uh, go, go on in time, as we have more and more to say and learn about the business. But what we do is we capture all of what we've learned about the company over the period of time that we've been interacting with them. So that could be three months, six months. And we do that so that we're all on the same page as we enter the business. But what we also do is we put a section called what if. And what if is really what, what this whole venture world is all about. The, the, we spend a lot of time trying to think about the risks, trying to think about the problems. But the only reason to play this game and the only reason to be in this, this world is for the what if. And the what if is really where it gets exciting. What if you could do this? What if you could actually be the platform where people come and actually proactively, preventively ma manage their healthcare, um, rather than necessarily just be a dispensary for medicines in the case of Zeno? Um, what if we actually were able to effectively reduce the number of suicide rates in the country by having a tech platform that actually engaged communities to effectively enable people to, to actually help people around them. Um, that could be really interesting. So there's lots of interesting, and that's for inner hour, for example, our mental health business. So we do this in all of our businesses. And, and I think that's where you start to get the comfort beyond just the numbers to say, okay, some of this stuff could be really exciting. And there's no reason why those what ifs can't happen. And uh, I think you have to do some basic setup stuff and basic execution. And execution is a very overused and abused word. Execution really just means getting up in the morning and doing your job. And I think it's just a fancy way of saying that, but it's, and it's, it's actually a very boring thing to do. It's have your weekly team meetings, do your write-ups, get the code done, have it reviewed, document it, do the things you said you're going to do. And that's unfortunately where sometimes people fail, is having that discipline and structure in life to be able to continue to make those things happen. Um, you have to get that stuff done. And as you get that stuff done, then the what-ifs start to open up, and that becomes really exciting. So I don't know if I've answered your question specifically. If you're looking for quantitative metrics, I think they vary by industry. So multiples vary by industry. Um, margins vary by industry. Growth rates vary by industry. We look at what is relevant for each industry. We look at the public companies, perhaps, in that space and try to understand how their financial statements stack up. Because at the end of the day, as much as all of this is nice and fun to talk about the dreaming and the what ifs and everything else there are numbers involved and so and you can assess those you can look very clearly at i'll give you an example if i look at rebel foods and i compare their their pnl uh to let's say uh, any given restaurant you'll you'll see immediately that their leverage in their business comes from the lower rent cost that they have their leverage in the business comes from the lower wastage that they have which then reduces cash flow requirements and working capital requirements uh, improves margins overall so similarly, if I take, uh, uh, let's say, a Bombay shirt company, 
where, again, we make everything custom, their leverage in the business comes from the fact that they hold no inventory. So their turn on capital is much more uh, effective than anybody else than a typical uh, apparel retailer would be. So these are, are, are things that we look for to try to find what is it that's going to allow us to have an edge on somebody who's already in this space. Because one way or the other, somebody is meeting this customer's need today. And you were trying to find a reason and a rationale for why you're going to be better at meeting it and why your business is going to be better at doing it. And so I think you can quantify that in, in places. Melora, jewelry brand, again, no inventory. So therefore, no working capital tied up. Your ability to scale is infinite without needing more capital to do it versus, let's say, someone who's got physical retail outlets that needs to keep making gold jewelry or diamond jewelry and, and putting it into locations. You're stuck with that inventory if it doesn't sell. All of those are operating challenges of those types of businesses that we won't have here. And so you, you, you assess that, you take a look at it, you believe in it, and then you perhaps conservatively look at the world based on how these other companies are valued and say, okay, if all this works out, it seems like it could be a good return. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, Sandeep. So I wanted to touch upon a little bit and pick your brains on in the winner-takes-all market sort of scenario. So for example, there has been a lot of debate going on globally also in terms of what is a sustainable model of investing. So for example, if a fund is investing in a winner-takes-all market, uh, there are many impacts, you know, afterwards when when the market is sort of consolidating, there are losses of jobs, the vendors, ancillary services gets impacted. So what's your thought process on that? How do you deal or just wanted to know what do you think about such scenarios where uh, people are ultimately there will be one or two winners in the market but rest will be sort of consolidated wiped out etc etc so as a fund as a portfolio what is your thought process on that yeah there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting topics there um uh trying to think the best way to start at this so let's go with first the idea of creative destruction right the the whole thought that in order for new stuff to be created, old stuff has to be destroyed and new stuff has to be destroyed. And I think that that's, that's a fact in life. There's nothing we can do about it. That will continue to be the way by which we progress. And I think in the destruction of stuff will come new things again. And I think we've seen that over time. And I, and, and I can give it just at a more micro level, looking at entrepreneurs who fail the first time, come back often and are extremely successful the second time. They know what not to do, they know what to be aware of, and then they build the next set of businesses. But all of that is, as you're pointing out, probably narrowing the, the, the scope of the number of people that are going to ultimately participate in this type of activity. And it will require people to be skilled in a certain manner. It will require people to think in a certain manner. It will require people to take risks in a certain manner. It, it requires a lot of changing of thought process, which is why you saw a lot of that kind of emerge out of the valley because you had people similarly minded, inclined in that direction. And I think that the statement that Silicon Valley is not a place, it's a state of mind is very accurate. It's, it's a state of mind, but that it requires critical mass around it to actually allow for enough companies to come up and, and succeed in doing that kind of stuff. Now, I think that um, the other, other challenges that comes about with this is as you find technology getting more and more effective at doing various things, suddenly what happens to jobs becomes a question. And I think that if you go back in, in time and you look at it, you know, we used to, and, and in India, you still in many places have lift men, people that operate the lift to take you up and down. And it seems like a pretty simple thing, press a button, you go up, go down, but that was a big issue. And so suddenly you have to worry about when 
lifts no longer need lift men, what happened to the lift men? They had to find another job. Similarly, when cars no longer need, when cars came about and horse, dri- horse carriage drivers were no longer needed, what did they have to do? They had to find another job. You have to continuously be in a process of reskilling people out there. And I think that technology is only going to make that easier and better as long as people have the willingness to, to go about doing it and I think uh, and have access to it, quite honestly. And I think that we're seeing that. Imbibe, which is one of our early portfolio companies, uh, which was sold, sold and is now part of Geo, has done a ton of work in ensuring that technology can actually help people perform better, learn better, and think better just in terms of how they're actually getting access to education. And I'm hopeful that companies like that will, will make it more accessible to people to be able to be skilled appropriately for the lives we live in. Um, the other thought that is out there in, in the world as well, and a discussion that I think is healthy to have and think about it, this idea of universal basic income. And uh, there's a great book called Give People Money, which um, talks about this, I'm, and I'm sure there are many others. But in essence, the, the, there's a lot of study that's been done saying that the, the, the concern that many people have with this idea of universal basic income is that it will make people fat and lazy. And the truth of the matter is actually that enough studies have shown that it does exactly the opposite, that people that understand what needs they have and understand what, how they need to live and what they want to do actually use that money to ensure that they're able to build a sustainable livelihood for themselves and then uh, may, maybe then actually spend time being more productive members of society in different ways. And there's so many arguments for it and so many things that we already take for granted that we're not paying for, whether it's child care, elderly care, um, the amount of, of, of effort that a, a house, house person does, could be housewife or house husband, let's say does, in general to, to take care of the house, that if you actually waged it and paid for it, the amount of payment that would go for that would be significant. And so I think that, um, and, and again, also our, at least Western models of how to think about uh, let's say item things like welfare or unemployment benefits is all driven by whether or not you're making an effort to actually work. And the, the, the thought process that says the, the reason that that's the case is that you must be putting an effort forward to work because it's a very, let's say, Protestant mindset that to work is to, to be closer to God. And therefore, that's the rationale by which a lot of these laws came down over time. So I think that there's an amount of reassessment of some of how we think about things in society that will come about, whether it will come about proactively or whether it will be forced upon us by virtue of some new approach to business models, thought processes, um, we'll have to see. I mean, we're seeing so much of that being driven now today, so much change being driven by entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs, you often find that the businesses come first and the rules and regulations come later. And whether that's been now what we're seeing grow in terms of cryptocurrency, what we're seeing grow in terms of, let's say, uh, electric vehicles. Um, so much more has been done by entrepreneurs in these areas than has been done by regulation or, or societal views changing. Entrepreneurs have driven it to make it something that people want. Um, so I, I think that, that, that those are some dimensions, I think, of sustainability to think about. The, the other, quite honestly, which is really important, to us and how we're looking at things is really environmental and social um, impact. And I think that, look, we're not an impact fund, we're not a green fund. But I think it's irresponsible and actually negative in overall returns to not consider those two aspects in whatever we invest in. Um, There's data that shows that the companies that are on the higher end of the spectrum of complying to environmental and social governance issues perform better in the public markets. 
uh, I think that the same thing will apply for companies in the private markets, that those that are mindful of the impacts and business models that are mindful of the impacts that they have in these areas will perform better. And um, we've incorporated that in how we filter for businesses. So again, I mentioned Inner Hour earlier, a mental health platform. It's an amazing opportunity to be able to not only do good, um, but also create a business that can work and give our, our, our uh, investors returns. City Flow, which is in the, the local transportation space. Again, if we can do this well and we can build a good business, we're going to take cars off the road, which is only good for everybody involved. And so I think that having the opportunity to put that lens on as we think about things also ensures that we're doing some of our part to, to drive how the future of consumption takes place in, in India, which will have 20% of the world's population in the coming years. And so if you can influence and consider how 20% of this world will actually consume, I think that's a, a phenomenal opportunity to, to make an impact. Sandeep, so going back to the similar set of stats, you also said that India's internet usage currently supports 22% of the world's data set when it comes to the internet. Uh, and at the same time, you've emphasized on the need for sustainability and talked about how profits and sustainability aren't mutually exclusive. So when you uh, invest in companies like Bombay Short Company or Kota Kurja, are you betting on them because there is a green investment bubble that you're capitalizing on? or because of the optimal business models that they've come to you with? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about Bombay Share Company first. I think that uh, we looked at a lot of businesses in the apparel uh, space, and I would say that there are many interesting opportunities there, but many of them are brands. And, and being brands alone, uh, my worry is that I'm not good enough to understand which brand will survive over the next 10 year period. And so therefore, the best we can say is that, yeah, you seem to be doing really well today. And hopefully you're smart enough to continue to evolve that, to continue to do really well with that brand in the future. And that you will understand the consumer trends early enough and you'll figure that out. So I think that that was concerning for us. The, the need to do something in apparel and the opportunity to do something there, let's start with it, was more interest, was, was interesting on, on, in and of itself. Now, what was more interesting or important was to find a business that actually had some systemic advantage, something that in its core base was actually giving it a, a, an, a, an ability to, to have a different cost structure or a different approach than anybody else had. And with Bombay Shirt Company, sure, the brand is important and it will continue to be a, a metric that we have to continue to look at to ensure that we're building correctly and that we're getting the right customers in and that we're using the brand effectively to do it. But actually what's happened is the platform that we've built is uh, what's even more important. So the ability to customize, the ability to mass customize, the ability to personalize, the understanding that how do you run a business on little to no inventory and do that across segments. So it's what started with just shirts and Bombay Shirt Company because of the fact that we have a platform here has allowed us to go acquire a brand called Cora, which is in jeans and have now extended jeans across uh, to customers in many, in, in, in both in many of our stores, actually now in all of our stores, and on the online platform as well, which we learned as well, by the way, by looking at what we did at Rebel. Rebel was the same thing. One kitchen, multiple brands. Here, it's one platform, multiple brands. So that then also, as you look at it, has the advantage of saying if I'm no inventory, then I don't have to dump product into a landfill every year. I don't have to discount to sell product. And so it, it, was, uh, it didn't start 
for us from the lens of saying, how do we do something green and sustainable in the apparel space? It started from how do we find a business model that makes sense here? And it, 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 it happened in this case, and it was, it was great that it did. Otherwise, we may have had to have a, have a different conversation about whether or not we want to invest in a business like that. But in this case, it happened that they were also doing something that was actually very positive for the environment as well. And I think it's not hard, actually, to find businesses like that. It's not where intrinsically the business is geared towards doing the right thing. As a matter of fact, I think you'll find more and more companies going forward will will have that approach and will we'll be able to actually um, prove that they are operating in a way that is mindful of, of the world around them. So it's uh, they're, they're becoming less and less mutually exclusive is, is I guess, my overarching point. And so it's not a, uh, a big issue to to find as long as you're looking in the right right direction. So Sandeep, I wanted to touch upon a little different aspect, I mean, in terms of unit economics and profitability. So for example, uh, picking from your portfolio company, Droom or Dunzo. So Droom last year spent approximately a rupee to 140, 40, 46 pesa, right? What do you think as an investor is the right time to pull the plug or double down on your investment, right? I mean, how do you balance the dichotomy of growth and profit? Because ultimately when the uh, the narrative comes out in terms of media and et cetera, I mean, uh, there are, these are big numbers, right? In terms of uh, losses over few years so as a portfolio as a fund how do you manage uh, this story and when do you think is the right time where you say okay no i'm going to stick with this investment for like three or four years or uh, maybe it's not working out how do you identify that yeah um so look we write a fundamental thesis for every investment that we make and uh that fundamental thesis could be in the case of, let's say, Droom. I, I don't recall what it was off the top of my head, but it was probably something to be effective. We believe that there's going to be an increasing shift towards people buying used cars as more used cars are available in the market. We believe that the most efficient way to buy those used cars will be through an online platform that actually facilitates a transaction versus a, an ad. And it could be just that. And, uh, and, and now you start building. Now, as you start building, you start to ask the question, is any of the data that you're getting refuting that fundamental thesis? Are, are we finding that actually people aren't buying cars? Maybe, probably not. Are we finding that transacting in this environment is not better for customers? No, it probably is. What we're probably not doing yet is doing it all effectively and efficiently enough. And we understand why we're not doing it effectively and efficiently enough. And most of the time we do, that there's a scale problem. You have to get bigger. And you have to understand, all these businesses are all the venture-backed businesses are trying to get to a certain size much faster than they normally organically may have. That's what the venture dollars are being used for, whether that is to fuel marketing, to make drive awareness, whether that is to fuel product, to provide more comprehensive services to people that would have otherwise grown organically had someone done it on their own. So as a result, you are inevitably going to be in a situation where you are going to have to be investing well in advance of when the business is actually at a scale that will allow those profits to come in. And so, sure, you, everyone will look at the MCA filings and try to understand and put, you get these big headlines that say you spent, you know, you spent 45 rupees to lose, to make one rupee and you lost 45 rupees to make one rupee, whatever it may be. And, and I appreciate the, the, um, I guess the shock factor of it and, 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 and the idea that, that that means something out there. But the reality of it is the idea of building a business is, is much more driven by what are the drivers of the revenue and what are the drivers of the cost? 
I understand what the end product is and I know what, what's happening there. And I appreciate that it looks outlandish that people are willing to burn this much capital in different areas. But when you start to look at the drivers and you start to understand, okay, is conversion rate improving? Is retention increasing? Is customer acquisition costs dropping? Um, what, is, what is actually happening? Is average order value going up? Are repeat purchases increasing? And if you start to look at those, and I can tell you there was a point in time in one of our businesses where it was going to take us 70 orders from a customer to recoup the cost of customer acquisition. I mean, that just sounds absolutely insane. Who's going to wow. buy this product 70 times? And it was a, it was a high value product. And mm. however, today, that's down to the fact that in our first order, we recoup more than one and a half times their customer acquisition cost. So it's, it's, it's like half an order basically to recoup a cust the, the customer acquisition cost. Now, it took time to get there. It took time. It took learning. It took iterating. This is a business that is characterized by experiment, fail, learn, repeat. That's the, the, the sort of mantra that you have to keep living by. And you have to keep operating at that cadence faster and faster and faster and faster. Now, that will consume capital. And that's what we're in the business of doing. And so it's, uh, you, you have to have a stomach for this. I mean, you can't be someone who's going to look at that and say, all right. I, and, and also, by the way, you can't drink your own Kool-Aid, so to speak. You can't just say, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Conversion rates are improving. Oh, life is beautiful, which is why we have a partnership which is why it's not just me sitting there saying, oh, no, it's okay, or Sid sitting there, or Prashant sitting there. We all opine on each other's businesses. We all opine on what's happening. We get market validation when we go pitch the story to other people outside who tell us other things. And so all of that helps you form a view on is it the right answer to continue or not. And, um, and look, our model, I will tell you up front, is, is geared towards wanting to continue because if we have eight investments to make, we have to make them work. And in that also puts a lot of pressure on finding why it's not. I mean, were we that wrong in deciding that the furniture market was interesting? Were we so off in saying that rentals for it could work or not? You have to really then say, no, maybe, maybe that's not the issue. Maybe the issue is really we haven't figured out the best product yet or we haven't figured out the right cost structure yet. And so this, and this is what I was saying earlier. This is what we love doing. We love problem solving. We love being involved in that. It's, it's very easy to say, oh, well, look, guys, sorry, didn't work out, let's move on to the next one. That education business we have looks really good, or that jewelry business looks really good. Good luck, guys, at Droom, or good luck, guys, at Dunzo. We, we can't figure this problem out. You, you guys do whatever you want. That's not fun for us, um, and that's not what we want to do. So therefore, it's not, a, it's not a simple decision of saying, look, let's just pull the plug because the burn is too high. It's a much more nuanced conversation around why is it not working. The why is very important. Um, Sandeep, looking at the same problem, but from a different lens, I want to bring in Green Dust as an example, which is a reverse logistics company. And while you personally recognized merit in the model, you passed it on to the Mumbai Angels Network, helped them get a funding of $100,000, if I'm not wrong, but because it didn't fit in with the tech-based consumer models that Lightbox normally invests in. Uh, how do you curate your investments and what are the benchmarks that you're setting? And when you talk about your partnership, uh, do all partners have an equal vote or are some voices louder than the rest? Well, there are definitely some voices that are loud. <laughs> um, but as far as vote goes, we're all, uh, we're all the same. Um, and, and I think that even beyond just us, I think that the, the team at a broad level has a big input in terms of what, is, what, what we're looking at, why we're looking at, how we should think about it. Um, I think, look, it's important for us as a group to cultivate as much perspective in the decisions that we make. Look, the way we look at this is, 
in the course of a, let's say, three-year period, we have to make eight decisions. And that's about it for the fund. After that, they're incremental. Are we going to continue to put capital or not? Are we going to raise external money or not? Are we going to participate in that round or not? But you've already made eight really big decisions on who you're going to work with. And so for those eight big decisions, it's a, it's a lot of time that goes into understanding why, feeling good about who the person is, believing that we understand the problem well enough. I, I'll give you a different example going back for a second to Bombay Share Company because it's one that exemplifies when something is, is may, may not have been the right fit and then came back and became the right fit. Akshay, who's the founder there, he and I used to play, we met playing football actually. And uh, obviously you play football with people, you turn around, you ask, so what do you do? He asks what I do, he asks what he does. He said he runs this uh, apparel business. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So one day he came by the office, and this must have been four or five years ago, and we had a chat. And at that point in time, I had no interest in being in a physical retail business. I, I just said, look, this is not our world. We're a tech platform. We don't get this. And he didn't have as much of an interest in really thinking about what the tech online world would do. And so we left it at that and we said, great. And we continued to stay in touch largely because of both football and basketball. And as time went, um, the conversation came up again. And he said, well, you know, my thinking's kind of evolved. I like this idea of offline presence. There's some benefit to that. There's a marketing uh, aspect to it that's very efficient. And his thinking had also evolved to, look, I really think that tech is important for what we're going to do going forward. And so suddenly then the, the opportunity was right. And we, at this point, had four years of a relationship, getting to know each other, understanding how we, we thought, uh, talked about business, understanding how we played. Um, we, we learn a lot about people you know, when you play team sports with them. And I think that that gave us then the right time and opportunity to enter a business like that. So whether it is referring a company to somebody else at a point in time, look, our, our desire and, and look, my overarching uh, hope and, and belief is that more companies will be successful than we will ever work with. And in order for that to happen, there are going to have to be lots of people getting involved. And so if we can refer deals to people where we may not see the light right now, and I'm never saying for a second that if we refer a company to somebody else that, that it's, it's a bad business. It's simply a business that perhaps is not right for us or we haven't understood it correctly. And I would love for the, the hundreds of deals that we get every month to be able to go find a home somewhere with somebody who actually is interested in one of those because it might be the right fit for them. And that's another thought process we have now to say that people are investing their time, energy, telling us their story, filling in information with us. Can we help direct them to people that may otherwise be more helpful to them or may be able to work with them or collaborate with them? But so I, I guess, uh, again, looking at how we, we, we look at, at things and how we decide when the right time is and what the right opportunity is, it all flows, again, from some aspect of serendipity. It may just so happen that we woke up that day feeling really interested in this area. And by the way, we try to be more proactive about this nowadays. We do uh, space analyses on a regular basis. And we publish them. We make them available on our site. It's a section called New Thinking. And you can go there and you can look at our views on social commerce. You can look at our views on fitness apps. You can look at our views on water, um, on many things. And, and the reason we're doing this is, one, because we want to understand these spaces. And two, because we want to make it clear to entrepreneurs what we're looking for. And if they have something that fits with what we've identified as the problems with some of the models that we've seen or the opportunity in the space, then it's a really easy, quick, interesting conversation for us to have. Sure. 
So Sandeep, there was something that really caught my attention when I was walking through your portfolio companies uh, in the news. So Rebel Foods and Dunzo both have raised debt funding. So Rebel has raised approximately 35 crores from Ulterior Capital and Dunzo $11 million from uh, from the same fund. When do you think, uh, Sandeep, such a need arises? Uh, is it due to the fear of dilution for the founders? Or, I mean, what are the reasons, um, as a layman, when I see um, debt funding coming into picture, what's the really impact? Or at a fund level, you know, how does it impact your return? Because I'm sure debt has a much uh, uh, higher uh, priority than uh, uh, the other sort of funding which are in place in terms of return, etc. So how does it really impact you? And what are the reasons a typical company goes for debt funding? So let's, uh, uh, look, we've raised all sorts of debt in all sorts of places. So let's just take the ones you talked about here. This is venture debt. And um, venture debt, I think, is now become a very commonplace uh, product. And it's a very useful product. And, and the reason is this. If we're, if the company is raising, I don't know, let's say for argument's sake, $10 million, and let's say it's monthly burn for argument's sake is $300,000. And as a result of, of taking on venture debt, you can perhaps take on another $2 million. And by virtue of that, extend your runway by, let's say, six months. Now, the extension of runway by six months may allow you to have evolved the business uh, a little bit further, either from a revenue metric standpoint, a margin standpoint, a product standpoint, you're buying six more months before you have to go out and perhaps raise the next round of capital. And that's very useful if you believe that that six-month period will be a period in time over which there will be radical improvement in the business. And so that's that's the, the reasoning for looking at it. Uh, I think the venture debt guys are keen and clear that they're getting some uh, debt type return over the period of time and their desires to, to play for the upside with the warrants, which uh, fits nicely because they're also interested in improving the value of the business. And they take comfort in the fact that they can come in at a time when the company is well capitalized so that there is less risk of default as the company incorporates their payments into their uh, general business planning from the start. So that's venture debt. Um, in the case of Perlenko, where it's a furniture rental business, where we've had to make furniture and own assets, you have to think about this. We put $6 million in that company and they took four and a half million of that, this was at the start, and made furniture. Now, we're a tech investor. We didn't expect people to be buying wood and, and nails and hammers and, and, and making stuff with, this, with, with our money, but it's, it was the right thing to do. Over time, we learned that actually it would be even better if we could finance that with debt because equity is expensive at every point. And so as a result, we've explored every possible uh, uh, aspect of debt because it was the right thing for the manner in which to build that business. So I would say that it's not a, and, and by the way, any, any, any finance class will, will tell you that it's smart to be, uh, smart to be thoughtful in how you manage your capital structure, which means you shouldn't just fund your business with equity. Actually, as a matter of fact, as an entrepreneur, let's just think about it. As an entrepreneur, the, the reason why I have a job as a venture capitalist is because as an entrepreneur, it's difficult to get debt funding for a tech business. You think about it, your business is the least valuable on the day you started. And mm -hmm. what you would ideally like to do is raise debt. Actually, what you would ideally like to do is have rich parents. If you had rich parents <laughs> that gave you money, that would be the best thing in the world. And if you don't, then you go ask friends and family and you get to a certain part and ideally they give you money. But if nobody's going to give you money 
um, then you try to go get debt and you go to the bank and you say, hey, listen, I've got this really nice PowerPoint presentation. I'm going to, uh, or I've got a WhatsApp group with a bunch of people asking for products that I'm delivering on a daily basis, uh, as Dunzo was. Will you give me two crores in debt? And the bank guy's going to look at what is the asset that's backing this? There's nothing. He's going to get lost. And so that's why we have a job because those businesses and those ideas can't get access to money in other ways. So we come in and we say, we will take the same risk that you take. So we will make money if we make money and lose money if it goes bust. That's a, 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 an aggressive type of investment to think about. You say, okay, look, I have no control here. I have no, uh, I, I have no control on the business. I have, as much as I may have rights and all that, I really don't control the business. I'm writing you a check. You have access to the bank account. You could go on holiday to the Maldives tomorrow, and there's very little I could say or do, and except for take over the business, which, again, I'm not well-suited to necessarily run, per se, but you're taking that risk with them. Now, if you're doing that, you're doing that for the massive upside that you get. Now, but over time, you start to realize once you're in the business, even as an investor, you, you realize this is the lowest value the company will ever be. So if you can find alternate sources of capital to allow the business to grow, that would be preferable. And, um, and that's the reason why people look at this. Now, it brings with it, like you pointed out, seniority issues. It brings with it default risk if you're not able to make the payments. So suddenly you have to, I would say, let's say, grow up a little bit and be, be aware and careful about how you're doing these things. But but isn't it, Sandeep, uh, debt sort of impacts your scaling because, as you just mentioned, right, you have to make payments, etc. So isn't it a hindrance uh, compared to a venture capital fund which is investing and looking for the crazy growth? Because you're no, pumping I mean, money back. I mean, you're returning money back, right? Uh, whatever it may, it may be, right? Absolutely. You have to return the capital. And so... But you're you're paying it on a on a over time. So you're paying. Maybe there's some moratorium for a period of time. There's definitely mm. some period of uh, just interest-only payment. There may be some period where it's interest and principal, or maybe an EMI. There may be a bullet payment at the end. There's lots of things to structure it differently. But you are also, in addition to whatever you're having to pay out, you are getting access to capital in the business. So I am getting six extra months of runway in the company. Um, and again, I said 300,000, I give the example I gave before 300,000 was the burn. Let's just say that once you add in the debt, that burn goes from 300,000 to 350,000, um, counting the interest and EMI payments or whatever, or maybe even goes to 400,000. I'm still getting another four to five months of runway. And if I'm getting four to five months of runway, the, the question is, do I believe I can use that four to five months to further de-risk the business and increase the value such that if my next round was going to be raised at 20 million as a valuation, instead it can now be raised at 30 million as a valuation. And if I were raising 10 million, instead of diluting 33%, I can dilute 25% instead. And that would be the, the logic that would drive the decision for it. it. It has lots of considerations, you're absolutely right. But I can tell you that on the margin, overall, the decisions go in favor of taking it versus not. Um, Sandeep, just to wrap it up, uh, we had a couple of questions when it comes to the flexibility that you've stressed upon from time to time. Uh, Imbibe is one such example which started as a paid service. It's now a freemium service. One of your, And if I'm not wrong, it was your first exit. Um, could you guide us a bit when it comes to the portfolio companies and how they've actually pivoted to these opportunities to ensure that they aren't sustaining themselves on a month-to-month -month basis, but are able to uh, tap into a bigger opportunity? 
and if you could walk us through your latest deal which is NRR and the entire process from mentoring it to actually funding that in funding that idea more than the team if that was the case sure um you know there's a lot that's uh i think talked about as pivoting being a sign of weakness or mis- or or a mistake or a problem and i i think that as i've said earlier already i think that this is a journey of experiment fail learn repeat so if anybody is looking at a business that's a, a startup and is expecting that it was going to be one straight line from start to finish and everything's wrapped in a neat bow and that's how it works and they're dreaming and um and i think that there there are more stories than less stories that i can recount right now of businesses that have understood their market as they've evolved and figured out what the best product pricing positioning branding may need to be and i'll give you a, a really simple one let's say uh, with rebel foods rebel foods when we invested was called fasos fasos ran a wraps and rolls business which had 60 physical outlets they did 90% of their sales um through physical people walking in the door and the other 10% were by people calling them on the phone and ordering and so we were investing with the intent of of making it all virtual and they were taking the 60 stores closing them all down making them kitchens and delivering from them and our desire and our intent was very simple we have 60 of these kitchens let's say let's get to 600 of these kitchens and as we get there it's sort of a network build out we will then expand margin by moving from wraps and rolls to breakfast to dinner to snacks to this and what you suddenly realized as we were doing this was that okay one you can virtualize the kitchens that's great but to actually get people to buy other products from you as a food brand was very hard um and again it should be obvious it should be evident given the fact that you don't walk into mcdonald's and expect to have chinese food um you go there and you you expect a certain cuisine if they started serving you something else you'd say i'm not sure you're really qualified to make this and so that was an evolution for us in the case of rebel to understand that oh okay you need a different brand for different products and then came the understanding wow that different brand actually means you can charge a different price and wow you can actually launch multiple of these brands without having to incur any of these upfront expenses that you have to incur everywhere else which is why again i'm saying that the starting point of when you enter a business is really the starting thesis or 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 perspective or uh i guess just understanding of the market is really important to say that okay i get this much of it and i don't get the rest of it but we'll figure that out as we go and that is so that's by very very nature of our business what's going to happen everywhere in the case of bombay share company since we talked about that earlier we didn't have a desire we didn't have an intent when we wrote about this to buy multiple brands or to have multiple brands on the platform it just again we looked around and we looked at it and said wow this makes a ton of sense why wouldn't we do this you can address more customers you can address them uh using the same infrastructure and it looks very much like what we've seen in rebel so you learn from another business and you apply it here um pricing in the case of forlenco and cost when we started in forlenco we had a certain amount of yield against the capital that we used to to make furniture and we thought that 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 was really good and we felt really great about it and as time went we got better and better at the back end we started to make our our furniture more cost effectively we started to understand pricing for customers more effectively and whatever that monthly yield was nearly doubled over the course of the next 3 years and that was something we never would have thought about at the beginning so sometimes the the learnings allow you to evolve your pricing more effectively sometimes the learnings allow you to change your uh your overall product proposition differently um sometimes i give you another example we're investors in a business called haiku jam 
Haiku Jam started off as a, a cool app where three people, random people, could collaborate to write a haiku. A haiku is a three-line poem. One person sitting in one place, another person sitting in another place, a third person. And the idea was they're really just writing whatever's coming to their mind, so you're getting raw ideas. And the thought was we could take these raw ideas and we could start to understand more about topics and use that information in some way. We also felt that we could get the community to write about brands and get content for brands that they may find useful. And so we did experiments in different areas and did a bunch of stuff. And actually, as time went, we started to realize that what we were able to get out of these raw ideas that people were writing were actually associations among ideas that weren't otherwise always coming up in other channels. So for example, if you type Mexico into Google, you'll get a search results that will show you the Wikipedia page for Mexico, perhaps local listings for Mexican restaurants near you, perhaps something on the, uh, on, on, uh, the Mexican flag or something. And that's what you get there. If you go to Pinterest and you type Mexico, you might get pictures of enchiladas and tacos and the, the flag and things like that. Now, what we did is when we type Mexico into the, the analytics engine of, of Haiku Jam, which is, in, which is now called Inspo, we ended up getting associations like wall, Trump, immigration. Things, these are the things that people were caring about at that time. So we've evolved that business to go from being just one of writing content to now one of the, an, an analytics platform that's actually getting used by brand marketers to help design and define campaigns largely being used in social media. So everybody has to create a whole bunch of social media campaigns on a regular basis. We're now providing them interesting thought starters to get going with this. And using tech again, we're able to actually design the entire campaign for them um, so that it can be used in Instagram or on, on a Google AdWords search or something of that sort. So um, I appreciate I got down a bit of a, a rabbit hole with these ideas, but hopefully it was just helpful to show you that there are different, things evolve differently everywhere and that's, that's normal. And that's, that's necessary. If it's not changing, you're probably missing something. And uh, I, I think it's important to, to look at that and make sure that you've understood it correctly. I mean, if you're generating massive amounts of profits and growing well, then maybe don't change anything. But otherwise, there's probably an opportunity to do something. Uh, I think your second question was on inner hour. And um, look, here, yeah. here again, the, the company was introduced to us by someone I've known for a while. And uh, so, you know, you really need to meet these two people. They will just they will shock you with the the what's going on in the mental health space and they'll shock you with just their understanding and approach to it okay fine uh and we met them pre-lockdown and we had an initial conversation and Amit's a, a, a trained doctor and neha is uh, an entrepreneur who has built and sold a company and you know we sat down and, and she has lived through a lot of uh, personal experience in the mental health space and Amit is a psychiatrist who actually operated um, at scale with the NHS in, in London, a, a variety of mental health facilities and, uh, and managed a variety of psychiatrists. And so we started talking about it. We started learning more about what was going on in the space in India, started to understand that the number of suicides is insane, started to also understand that actually extreme to moderate mental health uh, disorders are actually very treatable. So it's not one of those things where if you are, if you have an extreme form of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, that you have to be locked up in an asylum as the, the movies would, would show you. Actually, with the right medication and the right community support around you, you can actually be a well-functioning member of society, which, again, was very interesting and not necessarily the, the, the well-understood or conventional approach to this, and especially not in India with the lack of facilities available here. And so as you start to learn about it, and again, keeping with our ideology that we want to be in a position to both 
do good and make money, we started to realize that there's a, a massive opportunity here, not just on the, the more the lower end of the spectrum, not on the basic anxieties that people have, not the things that a calm and a headspace are trying to address, but actually at the more moderate to severe end, which will require outpatient facilities, inpatient facilities, require heavy work on all angles, um, and will require a very deep clinical understanding, which, which the team has. And so as we start to look at that, as we start to look at the economics of the business, as we start to look at the, the size of the problem, um, it just it, it just became very clear that there was something interesting to be done here. And uh, Amit and, and Amit have been working on it for nearly three years before Neha joined him about a year ago. And together, they seem to have the right balance of medical expertise and business understanding, which gave us the comfort to say, okay, I think this is a, a journey we can go down. It's, a, it's early and uh, the traction on it has been good because they, have, they do have an app out there and that gave us some comfort. But quite honestly, I think there's a lot of now building with the right number of resources. And, and actually, you have to think about this. The amount of money that's spent on healthcare in India is very low and spent by the government on it. And as a result of that, the amount of money that's actually spent on mental health is even lower. I think in overall, the health care budget by the government is about $10 billion versus in the U.S., it's about a trillion dollars for a fifth of the population or a sixth of the population there. And if you narrow that down to mental health, I think we ended up at some number that was maybe around 40 or $50 million of which even a smaller amount was actually utilized over the course of years because there aren't people to actually take it in. Now, suddenly with a $5 million investment in the business, we've massively accelerated the amount of spend that's going into this area. And I'm hopeful that this will bring other people in. And, and by all means, we want, we want to solve the problem. We don't necessarily just want to be the only ones here. So I think that we will we'll work with the team. We're going to create a lot of stuff. They have a very clear roadmap of how they want to go about it. And we'll build that out. And, um, and it's, a, it's a new journey. So we're excited to be starting it with them. That's great, Sandeep. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, all the discussion and all the points, I think all the listeners will also appreciate. To wrap it up, uh, Sandeep, what has been your learning? You know, if you were to start from scratch again, what would you have done differently? <laughs> uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the reality is we're, we end up where we are as a result of all of the, the successes and mistakes we make on the way. So I don't mm-hmm. think it would be possible and I'm very happy with, with where I am right now and I'm very happy with the the team that I get a chance to work with. I'm very happy with the entrepreneurs we get to work with, happy with our investors that we have in our fund. So um, all of that has only been in, enabled and been possible as a result of all of the the difficult days, uh, the 220 conversations of repeating myself nonstop, the, the flights that you have to get up and go on, the the, the the challenges with all the companies that you think you're about to shut down because you can't raise capital and suddenly something works out. I mean, all of that is part of what allows you to get here. And so I, uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot I would actually change. Um, I think it's, it's, there are lessons that you've learned. I've, I've learned at various points in time that I think um, maybe it'd be nicer to have understood them earlier. The importance of actually the, the importance of tenacity. I think that, I, I I had it, and I think as a team we have it, but I don't think we'd ever understood it explicitly in the way that I, I think we do now and the importance of what it means in, in doing things. And I think that's something that perhaps if we could have had a view on earlier may have allowed going through the difficult times to be a little bit easier, but it wouldn't have changed the fact that we, we had to go through those. 
So Deep, the absolute last here. Um, you have a seven-page document where you document failures. Uh, going by that and your understanding of the Indian entrepreneurs versus Chinese and Americans, whom you've described as mercenaries and missionaries, what is the one piece of advice you'll give to an entrepreneur who wants to start up or wants to come to a fund like yours? Uh, what are the three things they need to keep in mind, and why? Well, look, I think uh, they need to be clear about what type of business they want to build. I think that you know, there's a there's oftentimes, um, and not every business needs to be venture backed, and not every business needs to be a hundred million dollars in revenue in three years. I think that there are perfectly good businesses and 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 great opportunities to to build things that will fulfill you or whoever the the, the person is who wants to do something that don't need money and don't need to be large. And um, I think you have to have clarity on why you're doing what you're doing. I think that's the first and be very, be very comfortable with what that means. And I think that if you are going to take on capital from someone outside, whether it's us, friends or family, anybody, you are now getting on a treadmill and you have to be clear about that. You're getting on a treadmill where you have brought somebody else into your, your circle and shared the vision with them. And they are now a co-collaborator with you, no matter what you think. They may say I'm passive, say I'm not, you do what you want. But the reality is they have equity in your business. They will have control over the, the treadmill runs. And so therefore you should be comfortable. With that. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing if that's what you want. If you're not comfortable with that, then please don't go down that path and be clear about that. Second is I'd say do as much as you can without the money and that, that you've done that. Um, it means put together eight spreads, allow customer acquisition will go from Sandeep Agarwal when he came and met us for um, first business that he did with Shoplus, he had more spreadsheets and documents than companies that have been around for a year had. It was in, he had mapped everything out, had said metrics for everything, understood where he was going to go, and really withdrew. I think that it's just amazing how much planning can be done because the day money is not the day you start. The day money is the day the clock starts running and your capital starts burning. So you better have done everything you possibly can before then. And so I think you need to, to show that you have that. And I think, I guess the, the third would be, be clear about what your real differentiation is. I mean, why you, why this sell? You have to, to you have to be willing to put yourself out there, heart and soul, and talk about why it is you're going to succeed in this and what it is you've understood about the customer. And in an ideal world, I'd love to see some demonstration of it in some way. But the more you can 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 be clear about how you communicate that, the better it will be. And I mean, there's basic hygiene stuff. Be be clear about how you communicate. Be good. You make sure your presentation is well formatted. Make sure your conversation has some logic in terms of how you're stepping through the things, even if you're not using a presentation. It just shows some some aspect that you care. And, uh, and and that that again comes later to empathy. That's very important as an entrepreneur to have. Um, yeah, I, I tried to bring it down to three. I could keep. We'll leave it at. Great, great. Thank you so much, Sandeep, for your time. I think it was a wonderful. It was a wonderful session, and it was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you guys for having me, and uh, I, I wish you guys all the best, and uh, look forward to checking out other people on the the show as well.